Since all that we do is governed by the Word of God, we have uh, gentlemen who are willing to bring around the Word of God to you. If you do not have a Bible with you this morning, we would love for you to have one open in front of you so that as we study the Lord's Word together, uh, that He'll have the opportunity to show us right with our own eyes what we can see that He has laid out for us and for the saints in all eternity. So if you don't have a Bible, raise your hand and we'll bring it to your seat for you so that you're properly equipped this morning. And uh, we're going to be in Hosea chapter 9, so you can open up your scripture uh, to be in that location so that we can study together and enjoy this good word that God has in store for us. Now you probably recall from that famous, that famous passage of uh, scripture that we find in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 where why Solomon reminds his readers that there is a time and a season for everything under heaven. You, remind, you probably remember how he goes through and talks about how there's a time for war and a time for peace, that there's a time for love and a time for hate basically revealing to us that life is such a diverse thing that uh, we're going to find ourselves in situations where we need to live on the full spectrum of experience. And the fourth verse of that proverbial passage is particularly relevant to what Hosea will have to say to us today. In Ecclesiastes 3.4, he writes, There is a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. Many in the northern kingdom are dancing away, it seems. Many are laughing and carrying on as if no conflict between the chosen people of Israel and the God who brought them into covenant with himself is there in the first place. And so unfortunately, their failure to keep the covenant that they had entered into means that it is no longer time for them to rejoice. Their disobedience to the law of God has a consequence. They have reaped separation from God And now they're going to start to sow that separation. The blessings that they had enjoyed as a part of this covenant pact with God would soon, in part, be stripped away from them. Their behavior, therefore, is not fitting for the moment. Their nonchalant attitude is too lighthearted. And so Hosea calls for a correction from them. And so we are in Hosea 9, and we're going to read the first 10 verses of this chapter um, where it begins like this. Rejoice not, O Israel. Exult not like the peoples, for you have played the whore. Forsaking your God, you have loved a prostitute's wages on all threshing floors. Threshing floor and wine vats shall not feed them, and the new wine shall fail them. They shall not remain in the land of the Lord, but Ephraim shall return to Egypt, and they shall eat unclean food in Assyria." They shall not pour drink offerings of wine to the Lord, and their sacrifices shall not please Him. It shall be like mourner's bread to them. All who eat of it shall be defiled, for their bread shall be for their hunger only. It shall not come to the house of the Lord. What will you do on the day of the appointed festival and on the day of the feast of the Lord? For behold, they are going away away from destruction, but Egypt shall gather them. Memphis shall bury them. Nettles shall possess their precious uh, things of silver. Thorns shall be in their tents. The days of punishment have come. The days of recompense have come. Israel shall know it. The prophet is a fool. The man of the spirit is mad because of your great iniquity and great hatred. The prophet is the watchman of Ephraim with my God, yet a fowler's snare is on all his ways and hatred in the house of his God. They have deeply corrupted themselves as in the day of Gibeah. He will remember their iniquity. He will punish their sins. Like grapes in the wilderness, 
I find Israel. Like the first fruit on the fig tree in its first season, I saw your fathers. But they came to Baal Peor and consecrated themselves to the thing of shame. And they became detestable like the thing they loved. Let's pray and thank the Lord for the scriptures that he has for us to study and meditate upon today. Speak, O Lord, to us through these words. We are grateful that you care enough for us that you reveal yourself to us. And Lord, we have a long history, mankind does, of hearing about you through your revelation and not treating that revelation as a precious thing. And we pray that will not happen here this morning. God, help us to see how important your very word is, that we ought to cling to it, Father. For by these words, we know you. By these words, we experience the correction that we need. And by these words, we can see our hope. Our hope is Christ. We ask all this in Jesus' perfect name. Amen. God confronts the unjustified celebration of Israel here in light of their sin. They need to essentially wipe the smile off their face. I don't know if when you're a little child, your parents ever said that to you. You were in big trouble and you didn't see how serious the situation was. And your parents looked at you and said, wipe that smile off of your face. It's punishment time. It is discipline time. This section in chapter 9 particularly points to the fact that the festival days, which were ordained days of rejoicing prescribed in the Old Covenant law, were not to be blessings that this current crop of Israelites were going to enjoy on account of their sin. The presence of these festivals were an expression of God's love and generosity towards His covenant people. And their primary function was twofold, to keep them remembering the things that Yahweh had done for them and to point forward to the greater expression of these types that these festivals represented when they would be fully realized in the antitypes to come in the new covenant. And so we have festivals such as Passover. And we know that Passover looks backward and looks back to the history of God redeeming His people out of Egypt and blessing them with freedom when before they had experienced hundreds of years of slavery. This also points forward, doesn't it, to deliverance from sin that can only happen when the Son of God comes and offers Himself as a sacrifice in our place. We have a deliverance in the new covenant from the slave master of sin that gives us an incredible freedom and we should not take it for granted. The Feast of the Unleavened Bread in the Old Testament spoke of God's faithful provision for His people and God continues to provide for, to, uh, for His people today. We're going to be blessed to experience the table of God. Those who are Christians will come forward and they'll take of the wine, they will take of the bread, and we'll see how God continues to nourish us and provide exactly the kind of, of strength that we need through the sacrifice of His Son and His resurrection. The Feast of First Fruits was a celebration that looked to the harvest and recognized God's hand in providing what the people of Israel needed, the very sustenance that gave them life. And as we think about Resurrection Sunday, as we think about Easter, and we recognize that Christ was the first fruit of those who would be resurrected from the dead, we rejoice in that greater fulfillment of that picture that we saw in the Feast of First Fruits. The Feast of Weeks, or sometimes called the Feast of the Harvest, came at the, the, bringing, of the, the bringing in of the great sheaves of, of wheat and grain. This spoke of the giving of the law as well and reminded the Israelites that God had provided for them a structure by which their society would be run. And we see the greater fulfillment of this in the formation of the church at Pentecost when we have a people of God called after His own name who will live according to the power of the Spirit that has been given to them and lives and dwells within them. 
The Feast of the Trumpets spoke of the ingathering of Israel as he called them out of the peoples and to be holy and separated and different. And it anticipates the second coming of the Lord when the trumpet will blast and Christ will return to judge the creation once and for all. The Day of Atonement, sometimes referred to as Yom Kippur, is a settling of accounts of sorts. On the Day of Atonement, Christ instructed his priests to come forward and to sanctify themselves so that they might bring an offering on behalf of those who didn't even know what sins they had committed against God, the things that were unconfessed to that point. And we see a great picture of grace in the letting free of the goat, uh, the scapegoat that would go out into the wilderness. Uh, we also see in the work of Jesus Christ, his power to intercede in a permanent way, that we wouldn't have to send that, that goat out into the wilderness each year, for Jesus Christ has once and for all overcome all of our sin, from the littlest to the greatest. And then in the Feast of Booths, the seventh festival day of the Old Testament, the tabernacle where God dwells among men is celebrated. They rejoice in the giving of this holy tent where the Spirit of God was believed to dwell. And now in the New Testament, we, His believers, are the home of the Holy Spirit. Like living stones, we are built into a greater temple. And the Holy Spirit dwells with us wherever we go. He, he walks with us and is near to us if we are His saints. And so religious activity like the celebration of these meaningful holidays has to be joined to a faithful trust in God if the festivals themselves are to be truly useful to the people. The lack of sincerity in the hearts of those in the north and a devotion on behalf of, of Israel, a lack of devotion to him, meant that they were still technically take, taking part in these festivals. They liked the celebratory aspects of them. They would gather together and eat and, and they would rejoice in their families and in their tribes. But God was not at the center of their celebration. They were not truly rejoicing because of Yahweh and the covenant that he had made with them. They were simply rejoicing because they liked to party. We might note in Colossians 2, 16 through 17, the Apostle Paul makes it very clear to us that because we are in the new covenant now, those particular festival days are no longer required of us. The Apostle Paul writes, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in question of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Every reason to rejoice is found in the fact that God's people have now seen the begotten Son of God, that He has come to earth, that He has taken on flesh, and that He has done what we could not do on our behalf. So we have reasons to celebrate every single day, friends. We don't need to have a special holiday to have joy in our lives. And it is a powerful thing that even when life has beaten us up, and we come into the house of the Lord with a great burden upon our shoulders and those other secondary things that sometimes bring us joy might be failing us and might be leaving us high and dry, we can still smile and be thankful that we have a Christ who has atoned for our sin and who has made us infinitely secure in the hands of God the Father. So we have cause for joy. These festivals are no longer requirements technically of God's people. In fact, to insist upon them would be a violation of Scripture because it would be requiring of people what God no longer requires of them. But they served an important cultural and religious function in the Old Covenant when they were commanded of Israel. Do not forget what the Lord has done. Do not forget the promises that He has made. And the fact that they had largely, in the north, forgotten those things, despite the blessings of those festival days and the images that they brought forth, has led to a forfeiture of joyful gifts that God had given to Israel. 
In verses 2 through 4, we see a section that I kind of referred to as the shall not section. Many things that Israel would count on for satisfaction and joy will no longer produce the expected result that they did in the past because of their abandonment of their covenant king. The festival days were often celebrations of God granting the nation of Israel harvest, as we spoke about briefly, and the mention of those particular celebratory days. In the May and June time of year, that's when the grain harvest would be brought in. And in September or October, that was more signature of the fruit harvest, the olives and the grapes that would be brought in. Yet their disobedience to God and their disregard for His covenant means that their fields are not going to yield a blessed crop as they did before. There will not be sufficient grain for bread. There will be no grapes to make into wine. In fact, we're going to see in just a few verses that the people of the north are going to be expelled from ownership of their land to the point where what they counted on being their land that would bear crops would no longer even be their land as foreign powers will come in and take possession of what they thought was theirs. Rather than enjoying the land of promise, this, this essential exile will expel them and they will make their way north towards their enemy Assyria. They will make their way south towards their enemy Egypt. This is a reference to Leviticus 18 where it says in verses 24 through 28, do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things. This is a warning that God gave to his people when he was laying out the covenant law when he was telling them how to be a culture, he said, Do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things. For by all these nations I am driving out before you have become unclean. So as they were being prepared to take the Holy Land, these nations that were unclean people were going to be driven out of the land. He says, Do not become like them. Verse 25, And the land became unclean, so that I punished its iniquity, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. Very Vivid language there, right? Verse 26, But you shall keep my statutes and my rules and do none of these abominations. In other words, don't act like the people that you're expelling as I give you this holy place, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. Verse 27, For the people of the land who were before you did all these abominations so that the land became unclean. Now here's the warning aspect. If Israel was to ignore this, if Israel was to begin to adopt those ways of the very people they pushed out of the land, what's going to happen? Verse 28, lest the land vomit you out when you make it unclean, as it vomited out the nation that was before you. This ominous premonition of what was to come is seeing its reality in the days of the North's fall. This is, in a sense, a kind of reverse exodus that God is putting into practice here. The expulsion of these people from ownership of their covenant lands is a kind of reversal of that amazing uh, redemption that God had brought them out of Israel and out of Egypt rather and out of slavery. Their sacrifices are no longer going to be valid before the Lord and their offerings are going to be rejected because they are the ones who have now made the land defiled. Jose illustrates this by speaking of mourner's bread. Now, that's not a term we're very familiar with. And so uh, when you think about verse 4 and you're trying to understand what that means, essentially what it's talking about is a Levitical law whereby if an Israelite touched a dead body, even if they were respectfully preparing that dead body, that deceased loved one for burial, they had to endure a specific time of exemption from temple and from temple practices. So if, if your loved one passed away during a festival, for instance then you had to tend to their body 
but by preparing them for burial, by taking care of that dead corpse, you had to also accept the fact that you had been made unclean and you were not allowed to participate in those festival days for the time of your cleansing and purification. So for those who fell under that restriction, rather than partaking of the bread of the festival, rather than enjoying the great feasts that were laid out with all of their brothers and sisters, all they could eat was mourner's bread. Simple bread set aside for the person who could not come and partake in the festival. Mourner's bread was simply the sustenance they had to rely on because their, defiled, their, their defilement exempted them from the temple and from the festival uh, participation. Now, this is the best that the northern kingdom could hope for now, for their defilement had disqualified them from the joy of things such as the Feast of Booths and the Feast of Trumpets and Yom Kippur. Verses 5 through 6 gives a greater expansion on the loss of blessings due to uh, this Holy Land expulsion. They will be as one on the outside looking in when it comes to the festival days. We, we look back on history and know that Judah, the southern kingdom, was able to continue their culture and their autonomy for about 150 years after the north is crushed by the thumb of, of Assyria. And so they, as, as basically servants in the north, as a people ruled by someone else, would have to look down longingly at their southern sisters as they continued to practice these festival days, wishing that they could partake of it, wishing that they could experience those joys for themselves. Trying to escape the punishment of their sin, they will wander right into the clutches of their enemy. It talks about Memphis, which is the place that is famous in Egypt for the pyramid tombs. And so it's essentially saying, because you have sought Egypt out for your strength instead of me, you're going to find that Egypt is like a tomb for your heart. It's going to feel like you're buried and dead there because you won't have the joys of being near to me for you have turned your back on me and you have played the whore. You've decided to love what you shouldn't love instead of loving the God that redeems you. This Assyria that they thought was going to be a help in the north will also be like a slave master to them, will take away their freedoms instead of securing them. The land that was once their place of promise will become overrun with nettles and weeds, it says. And I, I have to wonder if our Savior, when he gave the parable of the soils, thought about the nation in the north when he said that some will, will have the seed of the gospel, the hope of God, settle upon that soil and it will begin to sprout up. And it almost looked like it's going to be a true fruit-bearing plant, but the thorns and the nettles of that particular soil will choke out the plant, the joys of the world, and it will not be able to produce fruit because it becomes so absorbed in the things of the world and the things of the flesh. In verse 7, we get a real insight into the attitude that has led to this catastrophe. And I think it really is the, the best focus of this pericope, this, this unit of thought. In verse 7, we get a real insight into the attitude of these Israelites who have still have a, a semblance of faithfulness, an outward appearance of religiosity towards Yahweh, but are lacking that love and commitment for Him that is so vital to the covenant connection. The voice of the passage changes in verse 7, and at first glance it can be a little hard to see who's speaking and who's being spoken of. It says, The days of punishment have come, the days of recompense have come. Israel shall know it. The prophet is a fool. The man of the spirit is mad because of your great iniquity and great hatred. The prophet is the watchman of Ephraim with my God. Yet a fowler's snare is on all his ways and hatred in the house of his God. Now, not only is the wording of this passage quite difficult to translate into English from the original Hebrew, uh, it is also a little difficult to understand what is meant by it. 
So the first part of 7 is pretty straightforward. It's in line with the earlier verses that speak about this punishment, this sowing that's going to come, or this reaping that's going to come because of wicked sowing. But then as 7 unfolds, we hear a great slander poured out upon the head of God's spokesman. The prophet is a fool. But wait a second, isn't the prophet writing this very passage? Hosea is the prophet. Is he calling himself a fool? Is he declaring himself empty-headed? No. He's describing, ironically, the attitude that Israel has towards those men who, filled by the Holy Spirit of God, bring the true message of God to bear on the people. Hosea would, of course, be included in that category. So his countrymen, the nation of Israel in the north, rather than cherish the revelation of God's word to them, rather than appreciating the fact that God loves them enough to speak to them and to address their iniquity and to deal with it, rather than appreciate that, they've grown bitter towards the God that has spoken and to the people through whom he speaks to them. These prophets are the word of God in a sense. What they write is the very expression that God needs his people to hear. They codify those words. They put them on the scrolls. And so the words of the prophets are synonymous with the word of God in this situation. The prophet's charge should be seen as the very word of God. And that's why he often will speak, thus saith the Lord. I'm not just talking about Hosea here. I'm talking about all the prophets that God used to bring his message to us. This special revelation, which tells us things that we cannot see by simply looking around at the creation, which is what we call natural Revelation. We can't discern the things of God apart from Him sharing them with us. And He does that by His prophets in the Old Covenant. By rejecting the prophet, the northern kingdom was rejecting the very Word of God. Now think about how tragic that is, friends, when you consider what a blessing the Word of God has been to these people for generations. It was the Word of God that established and formed Israel as a nation in the first place. It was the word of God, his own declaration, the revelation of his will towards them that set them apart from all the other peoples and nations of the world. It was the word of God that revealed the true character of God to the Israelites. They know him by his word and by nothing else. It was the word of God that guarded them from the follies of the pagan nations around them as he gave them a a law and, and, and and a commandment that they could follow. He guarded them from falling into the same follies as these other people that had been expelled from the land of promise that he had given. So many blessings, all flowing from the things that God has declared through his prophets and revealed to his people. But the very word that communicated great blessing and comfort to these folks in the north was now pressing right up against their desire to live in ways that did not accord with the covenant that defined them. Israel, especially in the north, had come to desire a covenantal relationship with God that was much different than the terms God had established with them by His Word. And so the Word of God, which plainly speaks the truth, which is not open to reinvention or reinterpretation, has become to them a rock of offense, a stumbling block. And they are bitter towards it. To them the prophet is a fool. To them the man of the Spirit is speaking madness because he's not telling them what they want to hear. Ephraim's iniquity and hatred have poisoned their view of the word of God. They detest it now. And in verse 8, we hear that the prophet is the watchman of Ephraim with Yahweh. 
But the consistent misbehavior of the northern kingdom has caused them to start to see the prophet in a sinister light. It's as if he only lives to catch them in some kind of snare and expose their troubles. That's their attitude towards him. They think that Hosea just revels in seeing them fall. He's always looking for a reason to criticize. But the fault is their own. This contempt between the giver and the receiver of God's message has created great tension and hatred, essentially, in the house of God. There is nothing but conflict and turmoil in the north. Our relationship with anyone is going to suffer if we cannot trust what they have that they have our best interests in heart. And so you might think about that in a practical way. If you had a mechanic who's supposed to work on your car for you, you're going to them for help. But if you can't trust that the mechanic is going to be honest about his diagnosis, if you can't believe that the words he says about what's wrong with your car and the cost it's going to take to fulfill it, if you can't trust that he's going to be straightforward about that, it's going to be really hard for you to hand that money over and to, to trust him to fix that vehicle. It's like the spouse who says, I love you with their mouth, but says, I hate you with their fist. How's that wife supposed to live in peace with a husband who is not living according to the commandments of what a husband should do? He's not protecting. He's not providing. He's not acting as a priest to sanctify his wife and show her the truth. It's like the government who makes huge promises about changes for the better. All the while, quality of life is ratcheting downward is decreasing and we see our freedoms slip away. It's hard to have a good relationship when there is no trust there. For those who follow God, we have the assurance of Romans 8.28, don't we? That God works all things to the good for those who love Him and are called according to His purposes. And we can embrace that. Even when our life takes a turn for the worse, we lose our job, we see our physical health begin to decline, we lose a loved one, our relationships are in turmoil, if we truly trust in the Lord God, Romans 8.28 is like a medicine to our heart. It calms us down and reminds us we don't have to panic just because the secondary blessings of life seem to be slipping through our fingers. We have a God that we can trust has our best interest in mind. If we start to think that we will only get what is best for ourselves when we are the ones exercising sovereignty over our lives, then that trust will begin to unravel. Romans 8.28 is a blessing to us if we trust the Lord. If we don't trust the Lord as the nation of Israel in the north has stopped trusting Yahweh the way that they should, then they're going to fall back against these promises that God has made in His covenant. When we allow our hearts to draw us away from what God has declared is good, then the word will begin to oppose our position, where we stand and what we desire. Just as the prophet was opposing the position of the Israelites that we're reading about. Let us now not grow bitter, brothers and sisters, when the word of God cuts us deep and gets down to the reality of our sinful condition. There is a passage in the New Testament that speaks clearly to this, and so I want you to open your Bibles now to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4, in many similar ways, is showing us here that we as God's people must learn to appreciate the very words of God, that they are good for us, even if those words sometimes sting us. And so it says in Hebrews chapter 4, you're probably familiar with this passage. It says, For the word of God is living and active. I've lost my place here. For the word of God is living and active, 
sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Hebrews warns us here that the word of God will expose us if we ignore what it has to say. And let's see how that is described in this passage. First of all, we're told that the word of God is living and it is active. And that is very contrary to the way that many people, even people who would consider themselves Christians, behave. That's different than the way they treat the word of God. Too often people function as if the word of God is dead, as if it is idle, as if it is on the back burner, unless that individual themselves wants to make use of it. Contrary to the way that people live today, the word of God is alive. It is doing what it intends to do, whether or not we acknowledge that fact. John 6, 63 says, It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. So the word of God is not some cold, inanimate word. It is not a detached guideline that we can use if it has utility to us. Whenever we feel like it, we can go and pluck from it what we desire. That's, that's not a good description or understanding of the word. The word of God is alive and it has purposes. It is an expression of the intentions and the desires of Almighty God. And the word will accomplish that which God intends for it to accomplish. It will do what he has set it out to do. God's word contains imperative command to us, which God insists we obey. There are consequences that will follow if those commands are ignored, aren't there? Now, we also need to recognize here that if the word of God is living and active, then we're not the ones that make the word of God alive. We do not make it come alive by our interaction with it. It will do its active work whether we neglect it or not. The truth remains the truth whether or not our lazy eyes want to look on it. Man has a tendency to view everything at his disposal as a tool, as a potential resource, something to be used in the ways that we want to use it, if and when that individual desires to make use of it. But the word of God is not to be looked upon with such an anthropocentric, with such a man-centered attitude. This is not just useful for us if it's convenient for us. It is God's declaration to us and it deserves attention. So when someone says, and, and I'm sure I've, I've heard people say this before, you might have said this yourself, wow, I heard from the word preached the other day by so-and-so, a great pastor, and, and it just came alive for me when they were preaching it. Not exactly. See, the word was always alive. It was a living, breathing word, an active word. It will always be God's declaration of truth. It's not just dead and dormant until you affirm it or until it moves your heart. It is the living word of God. It never becomes obsolete. What is actually meant when someone says, the word came alive for me, is I hope they mean I was oblivious to the vitality of God's word, but now I see how vibrant and alive it really is. I am learning to appreciate it and to apply it to my life in much more active and grateful ways. Do we think that way about the Word of God, friends? Do we treat it as a living and an active Word? Let us not forget that Jesus is described as the very Word incarnate, isn't He? In John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, we don't Worship the pages of this book. It's not like this is God in my hands. 
These are the active words of Jesus himself, every bit of it. From the first verse of Genesis to the last verse of Revelation, these are Christ's words. We should honor the words of God. We should let them have great weight and import to our lives. But many, even many Christians don't really treat the word of God with that kind of gravity. The northern kingdom of Israel surely did not. And why? The description of God's word in Hosea 4 holds a clue to that. Not only is the word of God living and active, it is described as sharper than any two-edged sword. This isn't the only place in scripture where God's word is described as a sword. This is an ongoing theme through the scriptures. And so we might look to Ephesians 6.17. This is a passage of scripture where we are told as Christians how to equip ourselves for holy living amongst the whole unholy world. And so it's talking about putting on the full armor of God. And when we get to verse 17, it says, And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. So the sword of the Spirit is useful in battle. It is a defense to us. It could save your life. Revelation 1.16, this describing the divine image of Jesus in the throne room of heaven, says, In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. This is speaking about the, the weaponist power of the word of God, that there is potency in what Christ has to say. In a world where masculine things are often framed as being dangerous and negative and to be avoided at all costs, the word of God is compared unashamedly here to an implement that was at that time very commonly used in battle to, do, to wage war. And we might marvel at that. That is, wow, that's useful, right? The word of God is useful. It is also dangerous. It is very dangerous to a heart that is prone naturally to want to be independent and autonomous from God. Now the way that the writer of Hebrews adopts and utilizes this metaphor of the word of God being like a sword, he has something more than destruction in mind. The sword has the ability, due to its sharpness, to cut through anything, to slice down deep until it gets to and exposes the truth. This two-edged sword has the power to penetrate. Do you see that? That is why we need to consider the sharp nature of the truth of God. This sword can divide soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and can discern the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. The significance of a sword with two edges must not be lost on us, friends. A sword with one edge points in one direction at our opponent, right? But this powerful word of God, which is so infinitely sharp and can get through everything, is double-edged. So it works upon us equally as well as it works upon our opponent. It doesn't only have the power to cut your opponent. Its power will just as easily work to expose and to cut away what is false about you. And here is where we can see the connection between Hosea 9 and this passage in Hebrews 4. The northern kingdom were feeling the slice of God's word through the prophet Hosea. And rather than taking that as friendly wounds, as the surgery they needed to cut out this rebellion and disobedience, they grew very calloused to its warning. They doubled up their armor. The thoughts and the intentions of the heart in the north 
did not take Yahweh into account any longer. They were more concerned about the practical implications of each decision than they were about the covenant. Hosea's prophecy exposes this. It lays the unfaithful in the north bare and exposed because it cuts away all of the, the dross. Now I use that word intentionally. Think about the Garden of Eden and the fall of man and woman. After their sin, something changed about the way they saw themselves. Adam and Eve's nakedness became clear to them. They saw their weakness. They saw their guiltiness. They had been exposed. Their covenant violations could no longer be hidden by God, even though they tried to hide from God and they tried to make coverings for themselves. God could see right through all of that. So the God who sees and knows all things is also the judge of man's heart. And the northern kingdom is beginning to experience that as the word of God via the prophet is exposing what they would rather keep hidden and not address. And this is a big part of the reason why when this word is preached in truth and power, it often becomes unpalatable to the lost heart. Think about preaching in the world today. Preachers don't like to preach about sinfulness. They don't like to confront the rebellious heart. People don't want to hear that. And so a church where the truth is preached is not always a church that needs to meet in a stadium because people are just coming in droves. People are offended by the gospel of Jesus Christ, which tells us that our righteousness means nothing before the Lord if we do not trust in Jesus. The word of God reveals the secret things of God, but it also reveals the secret things about you and me. And when you look at those two things together, something becomes painfully clear. When you see God for who he really is, peering through the glass of his special revelation, the scriptures, you begin to realize how holy and pure, how powerful and eternal and set apart Yahweh is. And when you begin to look at yourself through that same clarifying lens, the same scriptures, you see the opposite about you, that you are petty and finite. You are a created being, that you are covetous of what you do not have. You are unjustifiably proud of what you do have. The closer you come to God, the less you can hide your sins from Him. They become glaringly noticeable when your proximity to God becomes more close. So when that word begins to slice down in between the superficial layers of your own perception of yourself and the reality of who you really are, when it begins to penetrate our soul and our spirit, a man or woman is exposed for being who they really are. They will basically only react in one of two ways. And it is the one who wields the sword, ironically, Yahweh himself, who ultimately determines which way you're going to react to this shocking word. One way to react is the way that the northern kingdom reacts. The northern kingdom says, this can't be true of me. The, the prophet who speaks these things, who indicts me, who brings a charge against me, who says that I'm out of line, this prophet's a fool. The words of this book are madness. I don't want to listen to this message. I don't want to see what is exposed when the thoughts and intentions of my heart are filleted open wide. So I will turn away from it. I will reject it. If I have to, I will flee from it. I will run away from the word of God. I will build arguments that my numb conscience will, will accept as acceptable and I'll convince myself that the, the problem is not real, that it's somebody else's misperception of me. I don't want to experience the remorse of knowing 
that though I desire to be an autonomous and powerful and sovereign being myself, that I am in reality none of those things. Only God can be those things. And that stings me. That cuts me to the core. So I resent that piercing word and I try to refuse to accept its divisions and its prunings. And you might have felt that way at times in less obvious terms. I've characterized it a little bit so that you can see how silly it seems to fight against God's word that way. I I might even try to appease my sinful desire and compulsion to be the one in the driver's seat of my life by picking and choosing which parts of the word of God that I so choose to believe. As if I wield the power of editor-in-chief over the Bible. In that way, I might even be able to convince myself that I am one of the New Covenant Christians, though treating the Bible as if it is nothing more than a smorgasbord of ideas that I can pick and choose from to make use of. And when I do that, that's actually hard evidence that I'm not comfortable with Jesus being the Lord and King of my life at all. We cannot take the Bible in part. If it is God's Word, we take it in whole or we reject it. So that's the first attitude of heart towards the Word of God when it cuts us, when it stings us and pulls back the layers of self-deception. But there is another way that we might respond. If the Lord Himself is working in us to remove what is naturally calloused and hardened towards the things of righteousness, we might find the fact that God is using these words to pierce through and to penetrate into the deepest deepest parts of us, we might find that it is actually quite a relief to experience that. A relief because what we see when the sword divides the thoughts and intentions of our heart is not pretty to be sure, but it is true. It is the real us. And we are faced with the real us. We have no choice but to see that the solution to that is not in us. There is freedom in living in the truth. One of the greatest gifts that accompanies the regeneration of the heart along with our forgiveness and our relationship with God being made right is getting to see the final end of the charade of sin in our lives and thinking that we can do better than what the world has told us is good and true and thinking that we know what is best for our hearts. That can come to an end for us when we say amen to the things of God. What a relief when the truth is exposed and we see our wickedness for what it is and we see that there is no other way out of that wickedness except through the cross. When God opens our eyes to the fact that we are able to rejoice in knowing that Jesus Christ has the one and only solution for this ugly sinfulness, what a relief that can be to us. Friends, this is the gospel, is it not? When when you hear the good news of Christ, it makes sense only if you know the bad news of sin. When you know that you, just like every other human being who has walked the earth with the exception of Jesus, is incapable of undoing the laws that you have broken, the offense that you have accumulated towards God, you can't make that right. No amount of effort on your part can undo and unravel the wickedness of your heart. The bad news of Scripture helps us to understand the critical nature of the good news that if we do not come to Christ in humility and trust in His perfect and completed work, then there is no other way. We will not find a back door into heaven, friends. It is through Christ or you will never see glory. 
Why is it that the one who wields the sword, Yahweh himself, why is it that he will be the one to determine how you react to the exposing power of God's word? Why did I say that earlier? Because he's the one who draws. He is the one that quickens the heart. Our default response is the northern kingdom's response. It is rejection. We don't want to hear from that kind of a prophet. Look at what 1 Peter 2 verses 6 through 8 has to say. This will be on the screen for you. The Apostle Peter says, For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Who's being talked about there? None other than the Son of God. So the honor is for you who believe. For those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. It is true, friends, that not everyone will see the glory of heaven. Not all of us will go into eternity with a reconciled relationship with God. Who will know that kind of joy? Who will experience that kind of peace? Only those whom the Savior has set free. If you are not trusting in Jesus Christ today, I I beg you to pray that God will release you from this callousness, this false armor that you have built around your heart, which does not want to hear the word of God. Pray and plead with the Lord today that he would help you to see how much you need him and that he will help you to have not just a sting from your sin, but a relief of knowing that once and for all, this tumor that is terminal is being cut out of you if you are being called by the voice of your Savior. One of the reasons that the southern kingdom endured for another 150 years after the fall of the northern kingdom has to do with their reluctance to turn away from the word of God. They weren't perfect in following after it, but to a better degree than the north, they took it seriously. For a time. One of these histories is told through the story of Josiah, a young king, only 18 at the time that is recorded that he sent the priests into the, the, the temple of God, which had come into disarray. There were certain parts of the temple that were not being used or had been used improperly as a storehouse for goods that didn't belong there. And so Josiah, this young king who, who came to the throne as a, as, a, as a little boy and had to be shepherded through that responsibility, he calls his priests to go in and to clean. And he tells them, we, we need you to, to, to make this place appropriately cared for again. Take all the dirt out of here. Wash it, purify it so that it might be used for God's purposes. And when those priests go into the house of God and they start to work through the clutter, they find something. They find the very scroll upon which is written the covenant terms. Most people believe this is probably the scroll of Deuteronomy. And the nation of Judah had been in such a way for so long that they were not living according to the terms of the scroll, that they were not honoring the things that the scroll had said, that it was not on their minds, it was, it was not on their tongues. And so what does Josiah do? He doesn't say, whoa, this has some indicting things in it. I better hide this so that people don't see what a bad king I've been. I better hide this and do some PR and some damage control so that I'll look like a better king later. No, he says, this is important. These are God's words, and God's words are more important than my rule. And so he calls his nation together, and he declares the words of God. And he lets the words of the prophets on those scrolls 
resound in the ears of the people who hear it. And they are once again reminded what a graceful and beautiful covenant that had been given by God that they might be his people. And they rejoiced in that, friends. Let us as the people of God rejoice in his word in the same way. It is not easy to read the scriptures, friend, and to see it reveal to us the things that are broken in us, the things that need to change. It is not easy to know that we are far less than we think we are and that compared to Christ's righteousness, ours is broken and ugly. But let us not turn away from this word that is so powerful. We're not going to get to verses 9 and 10 today. I'll pick that up next week because we want to celebrate the Lord's table today. But let's thank the Lord God for his word and for the way that it feeds us as we transition our attention to the time of the table. God, we are grateful for all that you have taught us this morning. And we do pray, Lord God, that as we consider and meditate upon the holy things of your scripture, that we would ready ourselves for the two-edged nature of this very sharp tool. Lord God, the, the word that we have read today is, it's not just philosophy, it's not dead words. This is your declaration of what we'll be. And it is humbling when we look back through the course of the entirety of your revelation to us, when we read through the whole scripture and we see the continuity of all that you have put on display for us, Lord God, that we can see even in the earliest pages of scripture that our sin is a serious offense and that it has only one solution, that one, that seed of woman that you would send that would take away the sins of all who trust. And so we praise you, Lord God, for the, the head of the serpent is truly sore today. For the tomb is empty and your son, Jesus Christ, is not dead, but has triumphed over the grave. Help us, Lord God, to reflect on these things as we partake in this holy ordinance that you have prepared for us. Let us rejoice in the bread and the wine and to give you credit for the way that it blesses our hearts and it anchors us to you. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.